Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And this week, I am very pleased to be with Jerome Lucas, who was the, well, formerly was head of marketing and sustainability for Roussel, and now is focused on supporting and advising uh, industrials, I think internationally, we'll hear a little bit more about that. But Jerome, perhaps you could give us a bit of a feel for how you've arrived at this point in time, how you arrived as someone who is pursuing sustainability in your career. And then what we'll do is uh, kick on into a discussion about the energy crisis. And and from your perspective, as someone that sat in industrial roles, really, what's the implication, both positive and maybe some of the negative challenges too. But start us off with uh, how you've arrived at this point in time. Thank you, thank you, Alex. I'm very, uh, very pleased and uh, and and honored to be to be with you and and having this discussion. And uh, yeah, that's true. That I've been lucky to be leading um, pioneering initiative in the, in the industry in the past 15 years that have actually uh, been motivating by sustainability imperatives, mostly in the uh, metal sector, uh, formerly with Rio Tinto and more recently with uh, with Rusal, where. I have been uh, lucky to be at the forefront creation of the aluminum stewardship initiative and also at the creation of uh, new market segments for low carbon materials. Uh, I uh, uh, particularly created the Lau brand for, for Rusal, which is now worth over 3 billion of sales, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, journey that I'm very proud of. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky now to, uh, to, um, to have this experience and share it and uh, and uh, advising um, businesses in their decarbonization uh, how to abate sector but also uh, also investors in understanding their risk and how to manage uh, their assets uh, going forward to go to zero carbon and and also helping startups uh, if they have good ideas and solutions for climate i'm happy to help <laughs> So what was it when when you think back, because um, you've obviously been doing or been involved in sustainability and leadership in sustainability for some time, but but how did you get into that in the first place? Because as we were saying on our kind of first chat, it's still a new, a new enough area that people have come into sustainability, come into climate work from all kinds of backgrounds. So what was your original background and how did you step into sustainability? I think it's 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 fundamentally coming from the gut, from who I am from the DNA of my family that is fundamentally uh, uh, respectful of, let's say, the home, the, our common home, that is the creation of God, right? And that we need and respect that. And uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a civil engineer. So I was not trained or I, di- I didn't study sustainability or environment. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm, uh, and I just went to business. There is one thing I did when I was, um, my, my first internship actually was a research program in the French National Research Center, the CNRS. And at that time, I was uh, was in 1990s, a long time ago, uh, modeling the uh, climate cycles, the climate change. So mathematic modeling of climate change 30 years ago, I did that uh, just, just because of my personal interest. And and then I was connected to 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 the topic for for for, for that time. Even though my roles were more in marketing and and uh, and, and business development and, and and sales, then a couple of years ago, let me just fifteen years ago in Rio Tinto, we kind of in heavy energy intensive industries, and and you know what, climate change is a big topic, and uh, and customers are 
some point will uh, have to will ask questions and make the difference between low carbon and, and high carbon. So that's kind of how it came to uh, to kind of raise the flag and say, hey, we should do something. Okay, well, we're going to take that experience, um, <laughs> the engineering, and I sense a little bit more the philosophical experience that you bring with <laughs> it as well. Yes. Um, and we are going to talk about the energy crisis. It's part of yeah. this series that I'm doing, and I've been looking for people who had different, I guess, different frames of reference on it. And so you're representative of a large group of our listeners, so people that work in industry who are looking at this in fairly pragmatic rather than esoteric terms. So, yes. so look, we're going to talk about energy crisis. Why don't you lay out the landscape as you see it? So when we talk about energy crisis, which particularly in Europe has been huge conversation over the last few months, who do you see as paying the cost of the crisis and, and what do you see as being affected in terms of regions as well as, as industries? What's the sort of the landscape, um, the context for the rest of our conversation? Yes, um, I think everyone, everyone is paying the cost. Everyone. Why? Uh, because uh, because the, the, the major consequences of this crisis is a big tension on the energy market and a big increase of price so if you think that you have energy in everything you do every day uh, in your life everything you consume is actually made from uh, energy or needs energy uh, everyone will pay everyone pay the cost now if we look at businesses of course the one who are the big users of energy the, the energy intensive uh, are the one who more, the most affected, right? And and especially the one who consume gas, because if we look at the uh, kind of a spectrum of all the the energy, uh, uh, of course the gas is the one that is uh, the most uh, impacted, right? Because um, Europe has been so reliant on gas for years. If you think that Europe uh, consumption, uh, 50% on this consumption relying on gas imported from Russia. And all of a sudden, Europe decides that they want to get rid of this reliance. So it cannot be done like this. So it's created a lot of disruptions and shortages. So increase of price. So if you think that the price of energy, the price of gas in Europe went from an average of 39 uh, euro per megawatt hour that was a range of 2021 according to the ttf you know the price index of um, uh, amsterdam trade exchange uh, to 380 last august so 10 times increase of price for gas so now it's kind of settled down a little bit so just now gas is traded around 110 but it's still three times the price of um, of gas of last year, so imagine companies that are heavily heavily reliant on gas and are working on an international competitive environment. They hit. I can give you a few examples of uh, industries like the fertilizers, as probably the the industry that's been hit the most in Europe. If you think that um, to make one ton of fertilizers actually. Uh, you need energy, right? Uh, but you also need raw material, and the raw material is gas to produce fertilizer, to produce uh, ammonia and, and nitrogen. And, uh, and, and the viable cost to produce fertilizers is about 80 to 90% of gas. 
So all of the sudden, the, 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 the viable costs have been multiplied by 10 last summer. So 70% of the European uh, fertilizer industry have shut down. We're hearing from clients across Europe, but in the UK and other sectors as well, where they're, they're already looking at plants that have been closed or are in the process of closing. Mm -hmm. so I think sometimes that's a little maybe invisible to the general public and the wider market, you know, because most of the discussion has been about fears around domestic heat, hasn't it, or the domestic consumption of gas. But of course, this has already affected industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already affecting industry. And and back to your questions, who will be the heat? And I said everyone, because you, of course the big uh, the big users of energy are the one who hit first. But at the end, this create inflation, right? All through the vertical uh, uh, value chains of all industries, which at the end touch the customers and the poorest. So this create kind of a cascade of inflation, poverty. Uh, and, uh, and 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 shutdown uh, of, of of businesses. So that's kind of a kind of a gloomy first uh, picture for the short term. But I mean, going forward, this discussion, uh, I think there are also some uh, reasons for also good uh, good uh, good hopes. Well, let's maybe step into some of those because yeah. uh, obviously our focus here, um, the focus of Decarb Connect, is on decarbonization. Yeah, yeah, decarbonization of industry. And it's sometimes it, I don't know, it has felt like a bit of a confusing picture about what the energy crisis means for that, because depending who you talk to, it's either the thing that means that decarbonisation will never happen in one extreme, or you talk to people for whom, you know, the, the drive for that particular industrial to have their own energy security means they're now moving faster. So what's your perspective? Like, what do you see as the impact of this crisis on the kind of short to medium term? of net zero, net zero plans uh, in general? Yeah, I, I think here what, what, what is very key is it depends on uh, which, uh, which sector, which industry and how kind of financially robust the industry is. Because fundamentally, this crisis is the best opportunity actually to uh, uh, get down to get rid of, of fossil fuels uh, I would see even our addiction on on fossil fuels because the time has never been uh, so attractive when the relative cost between fossil fuel energy and uh, renewable energy uh, has been so favorable now it means that companies have to invest or business or, or investors have to invest in that and cannot be done like this, like in the short term. And, and big industries that are actually um, have equipment, millions of investments in equipment that rely on gas or, 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 or oil, they cannot really switch overnight to uh, a change of, of, of energy. So they have to kind of face this, uh, uh, this uh, short-term crisis while um, taking this as an opportunity to say, okay, this is a good crisis, never again, and let's invest and let's plan uh, uh, for um, get rid of our reliance and addiction on, on fossil fuel. That's, I think that's um, what most of the business should do. So now if we take the, the, the cases of companies and businesses like the fertilizers we just mentioned or the glass 
industry which are in deep financial crisis right now, I realize this is difficult. But for other businesses that are energy intensive, that are still uh, profitable and not so hit uh, by the crisis, that's a perfect time. That's a perfect time. I can give you an example of one of the um, um, industry that I'm uh, working closely with at the moment, which is the copper industry, um, and, and especially uh, industries in uh, in uh, other parts of, of the world, especially in, in South America, in, in Chile, um, they also face a big increase of price of energy, maybe less acute than in Europe, but still big. So uh, they, uh, when they compare now uh, the, 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 the cost of the megawatt hour, which has come to 200, uh, 200 US dollar per megawatt hour, uh, they compare it to now renewable energy, which is around 30. 35. So actually this energy crisis is a strong, super good business case to uh, invest into renewable energy and to accelerate the net zero transition. Of course, it needs time, it needs investment, but the case is here and the case is super good. So in addition to, or alongside the sort of push to for renewables, what, what else are you seeing when you talk to either former colleagues or the companies that you're working with now? What, what else are they looking to do right now? What other shifts can they make? Yeah, I think, I think when I talk to ex-colleagues in the aluminum industry, they kind of, uh, oh my God, what's happening? There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, it's difficult to get the attention of our top management on our net zero decarbonization plan because there is the fires burning on the energy cost and, uh, and, and we need to get the short-term fix first because before we can yeah, save the company or, 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 or make the business resilient before thinking on, let's say, the net zero strategy because it's 2050, we have time, right? I think this is a mistake to think like this, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and, and actually, uh, the real good answer we say, oh, wow, we have an opportunity uh, in this crisis that um, make our business case even stronger than before to actually turn to uh, uh, lower, um, lower carbon uh, energy or processes because, uh, because, uh, because the price of fossil fuel has never, never been so high. Um, so it, it, at the end, it's, it's always, it's always the, the conflict in terms of perspective between short term and long term that makes the difference. And the company who will look at the short term and say, oh, my God, I need to, uh, I need to fix more uh, energy bill and, uh, and find solution to reduce it and, 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 and don't don't take this as an opportunity to uh, to kind of invest and see the bigger and longer term picture. I think they over time they will lose a big they will lose an opportunity and lose competitive competitiveness over time. But there is a responsibility in the from the finance sector as well and then from also the government in this in this environment to make things uh, to make things happen. Well, we'll talk a little more about. Uh 
finance and government a bit later on. But let me let me pick up on maybe two particular routes that we hear a lot for uh, net zero and uh, decarbonisation, which are these kind of longer term plays of CCUS and hydrogen. And <clears throat> when I mentioned before that it's sort of sometimes a bit of a confusing picture about how the energy crisis affects plans, it's partly because I, I've been really interested in how these two deep decarbonisation technologies seem to seem to fit in people's brains in the context of the energy crisis. So on the one hand, we're hearing a little bit more that perhaps uh, energy crisis and instability could be a real boost for hydrogen. And then on the other hand, we're hearing, uh, but for CCUS, it's more of a problem, more of a challenge. I'm just interested. I know that's just two big technologies, but they are the ones that take up a lot of the air in the room in terms of net zero discussions what what's your view on that do you do you see this as something that's either good or bad uh in those very simplistic terms for for those routes if if you take those two uh, uh, decarbonization technology hydrogen and and ccus um of course uh hydrogen is probably the one who benefits uh the technology who definitely benefit probably uh one of the most. First, because hydrogen, I mean, we need to remember that the first use of hydrogen is for the fertilizers industry. And hydrogen is seen as a way to replace gas, natural gas, for the production of uh, ammonia and, and, uh, and, and, and to produce green fertilizers. So in a moment where Actually, the fertilizer industry, I think the fertilizer industry consumes over 70% of all the hydrogen that is produced in the world. So fundamentally, uh, this big boost for the hydrogen is more motivated as a substitute for natural gas for the production of the, 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 the traditional applications of hydrogen. At the same time, because hydrogen is also a solution that is very helpful for the decarbonization of heavy transportation and also uh, the steel and, and metal industry. At the same time, of course, this, uh, this uh, uh, technology from hydrogen benefit from this uh, big boost from the uh, investment of, of hydrogen. But fundamentally, it's because producing hydrogen for, uh, make it more attractive now uh, to 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 produce uh, um, fertilizers uh, rather than from uh, natural gas. So, for those looking at hydrogen for clean energy, how is it going to boost it? Though it's still an expensive technology to invest in, right? It's still expensive to get to the point where it can be used in in steel and other metal processing. So, give give me a bit of a sense of why is it that people feel like this point in time is is a particular boost for that route to decarbonizing. You know, the price uh, of producing hydrogen has kind of been multiplied by 10, right, with the price of gas that went uh, to 350 during the, the, the summer. So all of a sudden, the, the price of hydrogen went to the roof. Then when you produce hydrogen from renewable energy, uh, when you have a cost of renewable energy that has not been escalated uh, with the, 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 the same uh, uh, amplitude as the price of, of gas, then the relative cost of producing hydrogen from renewable becomes actually much more attractive than from uh, than from from gas. So the kind of the relative 
uncompetitiveness of green hydrogen is not uh, uh, anymore. So there's a big change of paradigm in this industry. And therefore, I suppose, more of an opportunity to, to progress through, to push through the earlier challenges to adoption, because actually it's like, okay, we can actually get more scale, which ultimately will bring down price anyway. So, yeah, this is also another, another point is because this energy, I think there was like over 70 billion of um, investment commitments that have been announced. Uh, in this industry, especially in Europe, but also in the US, since the uh, crisis started with the invasion of Ukraine. So that that is a strong commitment from all industry players and investors to invest in this technology. And of course, that will uh, give a positive uh, um, kind of reduction of price for the technology itself. When, when I hear you talking about both of those technological routes and Whenever we talk about energy crisis, one of the things that strikes me is it, it's just how do you plan? How do you make plans in these quite slow moving industries, you know, very traditional environments, long planning cycles? How how do you plan in this kind of volatility in those sectors? And how do you plan for net zero? Like, I, I wonder if you can give us a sense. I mean, someone who's sat, sat at those desks, sat in those board meetings, sat in those those groups, how can people make decarbonization plans when there is this kind of risk and imbalance in, in the wider market? I think well, fu fundamentally is, I mean, is, is, I mean there, there's a question of the numbers and which numbers you put, uh, which price you put on the carbon in 2025 and 2030 and which, uh, which uh, price you put for the energy that you're using today. Uh, and of course, those can be uh, uh, debatable and, uh, and and a topic of uh, endless discussions right within within companies. Now they are, um, um, you know, um, assumptions and experts who kind of provide those kind of numbers that can be used. I think that more fundamentally is more about a judgment call about uh, a changing picture of the future. So I think it's more about having this kind of understanding of the global picture and the fundamental dynamics that drive this, uh, this, 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 this crisis and, uh, and understand that. And then you put the numbers, you, you put the numbers to make the, the business case working. Well, um, earlier in the conversation, you'd, you'd alluded to the fact that, you know, investors and finance, as well as government clearly play a role um, in managing the, the kind of harsher effects, I suppose, of this, this energy crisis. I mean, fundamentally, we're talking about sectors that can't, you know, that can't be allowed to fail. They are so fundamental to how we build, live and develop everything we do. Mm -hmm. So tell me, uh, let's start with investors and finance. I'm, I'm wondering, what's your sense of what are you expecting to see from that, that wider sector and what, what is needed from that sector at, at this moment in time? I think I, I think the, the the finance sector has a big role to play, and one of the big roles to play is kind of to help the businesses and leaders to articulate um, this conflict of perspective in time between the short term and the long term. Um, for most of the businesses, especially in the company that are listed, the kind of um, short-term reward 
the next uh, quarter quarterly results are actually what people uh, are judging. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. And that has created a lot of, um, let's say, what we face today in terms of climate crisis and over uh, exploitation of the natural resources. Um, and fundamentally, if the investors are helping companies say, okay, we can accept a business plan that maybe will be less profitable on the short term, but you know, uh, we know and we understand that you're doing the fundamental things to make your business stronger and more resilient for the longer term, then we'll support you. So it's kind of shift away from the focus and the lens on only the short-term quarterly next result, financial results and look at the bigger picture again, longer-term picture, which is what will make the business successful and reliant on the, uh, the longer term. And clearly, especially in the more in the, the hard to abate sectors, any business that will be less carbon intensive, less reliant on fossil fuel will be winning. That's clear. So it's just about having the courage to support uh, businesses that will have, okay, maybe less, uh, uh, less profit for the, next, uh, for the next year or two or three and invest and be stronger for the next three to five years. Yeah, and help them manage not only that transition plan, but that exposure that you've been talking about consistently through this conversation, manage the exposure to to fossil fuels as one one source of energy. Um, and then governments, I mean, we've seen a number of sort of policy moves by different governments around the world from the US, although, of course, it'll be interesting to see we are just today, the day we're recording, uh, kind of keeping on how the midterms will turn out but it'll be interesting to see what may shift there but of course there's been movement in Europe in the UK in a number of other countries what's your sense again of, of what are you expecting to see from governments in response to this crisis and versus maybe what would you have wanted to to see it's very um, important for companies especially in democracies to kind of support the poor and kind of protect themselves and give subsidies right to uh, to 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 um uh, to to protect them for 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 this high price, high increase of prices but at the same time those measures shall not kind of be um an excuse to uh, uh, actually support uh, the continued use of fossil fuels that should be that could be a big, big mistake of our government that would be only focusing on the short term. So, okay, protecting the poor from the inflation, that's fine, that should be done. But at the same time, it should be kind of a balancing act for governments that being, okay, let's, le let's take the, 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 the short term issue with the inflation, but at the same time, use this opportunity to kind of support long-term investment to move away from fuels and to support decarbonization technology and to support uh, um, industries and people and consumers to invest in uh, renovating their homes, 
that uh, will make uh, their uh, uh, consumption less reliant on, on fossil fuels. So uh, I see here a big risk of democracies that are, democracies are often focusing on short terms. That's kind of a weakness of our democracies that would only for be focusing on protecting people from the inflation, but lose the opportunity uh, of, uh, of, of um, incentivizing the long-term um, uh, investments uh, towards more renewable and less fossil fuel dependent uh, um, energy, uh, energy processes and technologies. So you, you promised us at the beginning that we would um, obviously look for signs of hope in this uh, current situation. So if we think about whether it's technologies or strategies around net zero, what, what, what's, what are you going to predict if you're a betting man? What would you put money on in terms of the tech or strategies that are really going to progress more rapidly as a result of this energy crisis? So where do you think those, those kind of key wins really are going to be? I think clearly, um, clearly, this um, energy energy crisis is actually uh, a driver to accelerate the um, decarbonization of um, all industries and, and activities that depend on fossil fuels. Um, and and again, all this depends also from um, say the the right government in, in, in incentives. But I think this is a good opportunity, probably a, uh, uh, the best opportunity of the last decade to accelerate this 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 transition. And uh, also remember one of the quote if we are quote and maybe it's turning into a more philosophical uh, uh, conclusion that um, it is in crisis that actually people uh, are making changes. Right? If we remember one of our the creator of the project Europe, right, which was uh, um, Jean Monnet, who said that people only accept change when they are faced with uh, necessity and only recognize necessity when a crisis is upon them. So it's the right moment. It's the right moment to change. Well, I think that's a, a good note on which to wrap up. So, uh, Jerome, thank you so much. I mean, for those who, I guess, are questioning, well, are people still focused on decarbonization at this point in time? Actually, the very fact that you are meeting with, talking with clients all the time about the work that you do is, is probably a good a good kind of pointer to the fact that, yep, yeah, yeah, these yeah. conversations are still essential and they are still happening. Uh, and these strategies and deployments are essential and they are still happening. Thanks for joining us and uh, interesting to see how the next year unfolds. Thank you very much, Alex. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.